Welcome to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast where we talk about your body, your health, and how to fix things. I'm Dr. James along with Dr. Dante. We're back for another great episode and this is going to be some cool stuff. It's, it's another one of those strange episodes where we're going to go really wide uh, from some of the science, some of the philosophy stuff, a little bit of cerebral stuff, just because the idea for this episode is that humans actually need to struggle. There is a definite a definite uh, tugging match going on and you'll have to excuse us we're we're recording at home so there may be some kids in the background i've got five of them we're bound to hear a few of them so go go with us on that this is actually round three (laughs) we we've been uh, dealing with the virus and that also affects our recording but that's okay we'll get this done um also go with us here We're, we're gonna get into some chemistry don't let the biochemistry scare you away from this episode i think it's going to be some fun stuff and what we're going into depth about is what your body needs to survive what it needs to heal and be strong and what if it's lacking can lead to weakness so this is an osteopathic podcast right that's that's built into the title yes uh at some point we have to mention founder guy dr at still uh, the earlier the better basically it's a, it's a required checklist in the thing as if we actually have a checklist so one of the big tenets for this field right for osteopathy for osteopathic medicine is that the body's capable of self-healing and self-regulation now it's one thing right. to say that once upon a time about 130 years ago right saying hey by the way there's a better way the body can heal is another thing to be correct. So one of the really nice things that happened across the 20th century was the way basic science has evolved. We've learned, yeah, homeostasis. We've learned uh, various ways that the cells, the tissues, the structures as a, as, at a broad level adapt. And although he might have been not quite right as far as the nitty gritty details, look, this is pre-lab work. Right, we didn't have any tests, we had no chemistry to We didn't have antibiotics. We had no antibiotics, we had no vaccinations. Right. Lots of uh, missing pieces that are now in place to help us understand. Right, it turns out the spirit of the thing, the idea that the body can actually self-heal and self-regulate in a meaningful way, was more right than wrong. But then the issue becomes, okay, so fine, hooray for us, we learned that the body can heal, so why are we so damn sick? Well, and this is an interesting interface between philosophy and physiology and where we translate a philosophy that a priori made a lot of sense even back in the time where uh, Dr. Still was uh, blazing this trail. He spoke Latin. (laughs) He did and he he studied German philosophers and all sorts of different things. I was actually referring to you. (laughs) Well, We'll go with that, too. There you go. That's the only Latin I know. uh, Don't quote me on any other Latin. If you do, then, uh, well, we're going to leave that one very very well enough alone. Pig Latin. Um, (laughs) Pig Latin and uh, pigeon. We'll we'll go with pigeon. There you go. But, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about how this philosophy that we know of as osteopathy and others has now become physiology and how science is coming back and saying, hey, maybe there's something to this whole idea of the body regulating itself. Right. So one of the really nice evolutions in the regulatory idea, so when we were in training, right, when you and I were in our med student phase, and even in probably undergrad phase, uh, the idea was homeostasis, the idea that uh, the body, the cell actually, is set up in such a way that it's designed to maintain a certain internal environment. 
and that was a really elegant idea. And then as uh, as the literature evolved, as our insight into how that homeostatic mechanism works, that's a really fun word, homeostatic, right. as in maintaining the same, that's what that means, right? Same status, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. It turns out that it wasn't actually accurate. We're not quite in homeostasis. We're building towards something relatively consistently, but that act of building towards something happens in a very controlled manner, hopefully. So that's the idea, right? I mean, you you think about it from a teeter totter standpoint. If you have a, a well balanced teeter totter with a fulcrum in the middle and equal lengths on either side, both being levers, if you see a teeter totter imbalance, it's usually because there's a little bit of motion either way that's continually active. The teeter totter itself is not static if you have two people on it that are of the same weight, but it's in a constant state of minuscule movement. The body is the same way. It's not that we're always, we don't always have the same amount of sodium and potassium in our blood. We don't always have the same amount of electricity traveling through neurons. It varies. But the sum product is if I look at Dr. Dante and say, you're having a pretty stable day today. And Dr. Dante is like, yeah, I'm pretty stable today. That doesn't mean there's not a lot of change going on inside. It just all comes out in appearance to be stability. Unless I'm dead, in which case he's talking to a corpse, in which case I am stably dead. <laughs> and, no other, and nobody talks to a corpse, of course. Exactly, unless you're, well, anyway. <laughs> so the idea was that, okay, fine, homeostasis is one thing, but we seem to adapt. When we merge the literature for adaptation and merge that with the literature for homeostasis, put it all together and you get this idea of allostatic load or allostasis. Okay, what's the point of a new word, right? Because. Oh, I mean, scientists have to get paid somehow. <laughs> but the idea... <laughs> they, have they have to have some reason to be in existence. Grant writing is hard, okay? It is. So the idea with the allostatic load is that there's a certain amount of strain that the system has to be under in order to maintain um, its parameters. So the biggest example I use of this, and it's, it's very rudimentary, it kind of smashes out some of the details, but it's actually with diabetes. Um, a lab I order for my patients sometimes, not all the time, is actually their fasting insulin level. Right. And for those who are diabetic or for those who treat diabetes, that's not a typical thing to order. And then the question becomes why? So let's pretend you're, you, you have blood and your blood sugar needs to float, let's say, between 80 and 100, just setting up some, some parameters, right? That's a common standard there for you go. a quote-unquote normal blood sugar level. Exactly. And then whatever your body does to maintain 80 to 100, if we only cared about the homeostatic idea, then as long as it's 80 to 100, we're golden, have fun, move on, have a nice day. If, But what if, let's say, to maintain that 80 to 100, setting up some arbitrary numbers, you needed two units of insulin. Not insulin that you inject, but insulin that your pancreas produces on its own, right? right. Uh, so for two units of insulin, you get to maintain 80 to 100. What if instead of two units, you needed 20? What if you needed 10 times more insulin to look good on the surface? That means that the system is under that much more strain. That means your pancreas is working harder than it should. Right, or rather it's working harder than it would have in the past and now that the systems need to adapt to it. Unfortunately, one of those maladaptive systems that evolve out of that scenario is insulin resistance, as in mm -hmm. eventually diabetes. But there's this idea that the way the body maintains itself is in, an, is in and of itself a thing that the body needs to adapt to. That's like some meta-level adaptation stuff, yeah. but that's what we're dealing with here. Well, we, and the argument is the level of the blood sugar is not really the indicator of your body's 
um, healthy sta status right now is how hard the body has to work to get that. So back to the whole fasting, in fasting insulin levels, that gives you a, a more accurate look of what your body is having to do to maintain its quote unquote normal. Exactly. And if you continue to overtax your pancreas over time, what happens? It gives out. Uh, there, there can be a number of things that can happen. Your pancreas can stop producing insulin. If the, the insulin levels are too high, over time your body becomes less sensitive to insulin. It's kind of like when your kids continually yell at you, you eventually start to tune them out. Now your body does that to its insulin as well. And that, uh, in type 2 diabetics, that's often what really happens first, is that insulin stops being effective. Correct. And the question becomes, is that disease or is that you know, pathology? Is that an intended? Is that a bug or is that an intended function, right? And this is where we disconnect a little bit from the biology. The point of this idea isn't so much that you guys learn how hormones work with diabetes per se, at least not for today. Save that for a different one. We'll have fun there. It's the body is going to adapt. And whether it adapts in a way that is advantageous or disadvantageous to your environment, that's... That's something that we should be able to take more control of, or rather that's something that if you didn't know was a thing, you'll leave to random chance. Um, this is Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. At some point we have to quote A.T. Still, because I'm Dr. Paredes apparently, I seem to always find a way to work Young or Kierkegaard or somebody into the mix. <laughs> it's a thing, right? He is Jungian in, in nature in some ways. I mean... Doc, Dr. Dante is at least. I am 31. Yes. He's still, he's still young. I'm a youngin, I guess. Young at heart. There you go. There's <laughs> this idea that if you you need to make the things that are unconscious conscious, as in you need to make the known the unknown things known, because if you do not, then those unknown things will occur to you anyway, but because they're blindsided to you, you consider it fate, where in fact that could have been a thing you could have controlled altogether. Something if, that could have been avoided right. if you'd known it had been going on in the first place. Right, right. You end up with no knowledge on how to eat in a way that protects your heart, get a heart attack, and you call it destiny, when in fact it could have just been, you know, what do you mean I'm not supposed to eat spaghetti all the time? And if <laughs> you didn't mean, know, I'm not supposed right? to drink a gallon of Mountain Dew or Dr. Pepper every day. Exactly. And no shame here. If you never knew, you didn't know. But if you don't know, now you know. But if you didn't, I can't blame you for that. Do you see how that works? And knowing is like half, half the battle. battle. Right. We went from Biggie Smalls to, to reading Rainbow real fast, man. And then right into G.I. Joe. Cool. So <laughs> the idea is that there's going to be some sort of stimuli that we calibrate the body towards if we know what to aim for, if we know what, what kind of stress the body can adapt to in order to keep it running well in our environment. That is something like the healing mechanism. Rather, if we make sure that the body is adapted so that the everyday environment is basically easy mode, that's a pretty good definition of health. Man, I'm so good that this environment is not stressful. Well, when you understand the tug of war, both sides of the tug of war, then you can manipulate both sides of the tug of war so that the rope stays where it's supposed to be. What we see as disease is the tug of war is getting too strong on one side, pulling the entire rope its direction. What are these two sides? It's a good, I, I, I like that image actually. We didn't use that during take one and take two of this. so. Let's play that out. What are the two sides in this tug? So in, in the case of diabetes, the two sides of the tug are consumption of sugar, right? Leading to 
insulin levels spiking. So if you continue to spike the insulin levels, the opposite side of that tug is the body's response to insulin. You eventually can no longer handle that level of insulin, so you have to pull harder and pull harder and pull harder to keep the rope in the middle. Okay. Eventually the body's in inability res to respond to insulin breaks the rope tugs completely to one side and then you start having systemic inflammation all over the place blood vessels start withering away at their ends you start losing eyesight kidney function limbs and so on and so the tug just just gives out on one side the team just the body's health team just loses out and boom is gone fair enough i could work with that so let's let's play with this idea a little bit more the body specifically the human body there was this really cool book that i read um in the past week actually it was by a fellow uh professor jonathan Haidt. it was on yeah 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 the, the, he's the, got several things out there yeah the righteous mind guy the coddling of the american mind guy mm -hmm. in his coddling book he mentioned specifically um another another book from another uh researcher another phd i can't remember his name precisely so maybe we'll put that in the show notes at some point when we finally make show notes on um we'll get there I one promise. day that there's this idea of anti-fragility. So there's, uh, there are things that are breakable. There are things that are uh, able to adapt, things that can't adapt. The idea with anti-fragility is under certain parameters, the thing that we're investigating does not actually break but maintains itself, becomes stronger potentially. Mm -hmm. But without those stressors, things break down. Uh, what does that mean practically? Um, in his literature, uh, Height and uh, the guy whose name I wish I could remember, the anti-fragile guy, we're talking about how without specific stressors, the psyche doesn't actually thrive. Without the additional stress that causes it to work, it, it, it breaks down. We, we've, we have talked about this in, well, in our first take. Oh, we'll go back to this as a little bit from a, a plant perspective. Uh, in the past week, we've had uh, some storms out here in Texas. And I have a little, I have a small garden. And... Um, you would love to just protect your plants from wind and rain and storms but in reality plants need more than water they need resistance they need the movement of air to push against their stems as the air pushes against the stems those plants are stimulated to make stronger more resistant stems that makes for a healthier plant and then electricity is discharged through the air during thunderstorms that releases atmospheric nitrogen into the soil making plants green during thunderstorms so as much as we fear lightning there is a biological purpose that our role that it plays in making plants healthier and stronger our bodies are very much the same attuned to the environment in which they find themselves they can respond to that environment and use internal mechanisms to strengthen things for example exercise strengthening muscles and cardiovascular tone. Right. There was, um, there was a paper we stumbled upon during our review for this episode. It was uh, from a journal called Medical Hypothesis, which is a very strange journal if you guys have ever have access to these types of things. You should definitely check it out. It's a fun journal, and that, that's, those are words that don't typically match together. It's a very fun journal. What happens here is everything from like crockpot theories all the way to highly sophisticated like overarching theories of, of life all get published in this spot. So it can go from something like, you know what, maybe Parkinson's comes from an infection in the appendix that we cut out, all the way <laughs> right. up into 
um, overarching theories of existence. Like it goes from basic biology theories to metaphysics, and it doesn't skip a beat. It's a strange journal. It's a great mix, though. Yeah. It allows us to talk about things and in a, in a place where no one else would, in other journals, wouldn't talk about it. Right. It's a pretty creative journal. It's, it's mostly, it's almost, it's as close to liberal arts as, as I can find in this environment. But there was this really cool paper that you showed me, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was on intermittent living, which, if you thought intermittent fasting was a buzzword, here's the next step. Intermittent living. There was this idea that mm -hmm. uh, we need periodic stresses and strains of all sorts in order to tune our system up to handle stresses of all sorts. And, and it was a new term to me when I first found it. Um, I had heard of the intermittent fasting and, and those kinds of things, but I had never thought about things like intermittent temperature, for example, right, or intermittent effort, um, and a few other intermittent things that you know our ancestors all had to suffer through because they didn't have air conditioning and uh, they didn't have sit-down work. Right. You know, they, they had to put forth a, a strong physical effort every day, but it wasn't consistent from day to day. It wasn't like they were going to the gym and putting in 10 sets and 20 reps of whatever weight you're, you're putting. They had one day they had to clear out a bunch of trees. The next day they had to dig up a bunch of rocks. The next day they had to build a fence. And so the, the efforts were different. The resistance was different throughout their existence. You've hum somehow summed up both paleo and CrossFit philosophy. <laughs> All in one. But that's the idea. It's um, acute moments of intermittent, of acute, strange, relatively, not random, but pointed stressors. Um, it was cool. Reading that paper, this really old idea back from like high school biology that never really meant anything to me suddenly clicked phenomenally. Mm -hmm. Do you remember way back in the day heat shock proteins? Yeah, yeah. And we had to learn them about like, oh yeah, um, something, something beta amyloid plaque, something, something technical knowledge, fall asleep, nobody cares, heat shock proteins. And then um, all of a sudden we stumble upon that paper and then they go back to things from way back when heat shock proteins, why are they called that? Oh, they only activate under temperatures I think it was above 98 degrees Fahrenheit for the particular one I'm thinking of. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, okay, whatever, nobody cares. What does it do? Oh, wait, it's, a, it's an inflammatory regulator. What does that mean? That means that this particular protein system that is part of our cellular structure only activates under moments of high heat. Furthermore, when it gets activated under moments of high heat north of 98 degrees Celsius, it modulates the inflammatory in the immune system to make us more prone to fight off infections and to be in less pain. I think about that in the most abstract sense and go, I don't know why anybody would care about this, but you take one little jump and go, when would the body be above 98 degrees Fahrenheit? Yeah, right in the middle of the eighth burpee on the third set. Yeah, or if you live deep in the heart of Texas. <laughs> it gets hot in Texas, <laughs> Oh, guys. we went there. That song is in my head, da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, yeah, Stars uh, and Stripes, <laughs> Fort Worth, I got you. But that's a big deal here because, hey, heat, is uncomfortable, it's annoying. Nobody right. likes to sweat unless you're one of those folks, in which case go to a CrossFit gym. However, if you don't get that exposure to heat, that aspect of the system that keeps you out of pain and uh, fighting infection never gets to go live. And never that's gets like activated. You know, right. It's like playing a piano without like the bottom octave or something. Yeah, you're not you have uh, three pedals to play with the on the piano and if you never push them you never know what the damper does. Exactly. And there's an even bigger system 
that we should um, dive into because after we read about the the uh, the heat shock protein thing, there was a lot of cool stuff like intermittent cold, mm-hmm. intermittent thirst. That was a weird one, but it was there and uh, it's it's a thing, right? And in all fairness, the heat shock system it's well defined in the literature. Same thing with the cold shock. However, for thirst, it was kind of wishy washy. The one that really needs to kind of reign supreme here, like the deadlifting of of uh, metabolic adaptation. Because I guess deadlifting is my metaphor for the best, right? Yeah. Cool. Because the deadlifts that is, that, of that metabolic the adaptation. There you the go. Best lift. It is the king of lifts, sir. It, it is. Um, is this system that I didn't learn about, honestly, until um, late into residency, beginning of my attending career. It was the AMPK and the mTOR system. Well, and this system totally fits that whole tug of war. Here's a fun fact. The body is calibrated for adversity. However, not all adversity needs to suck. Uh, for example, I just spent some of the first portion of this episode talking about heat shock proteins and needing the temperature to rise and so on and so forth. The cool thing is, we're not really that selective on how the heat shock proteins get activated. We don't care how the temperature gets up per se. For example, you can activate these systems by chilling out in a sauna. Some evidence is out there to suggest that Spending about 15 to 20 minutes in a sauna, two or three times per week, does a reasonably decent job simulating some of the metabolic effects of exercises. So you might even say that this AMPK working with the mTOR are both ends of the rope but have the same ultimate goal in mind. Of course, they're not thinking about it, but uh, the idea is, is they're pulling on the rope, they're trying to keep the rope. Usually in a tug of war, there's a mark in the middle of the rope, and whoever wins is the the team who pulls the mark to their side the most readily and most completely. They're trying to keep that mark on the rope right in the center. And of course, as we've talked in the, already on this episode, that mark goes back and forth. But APK and mTOR, those are our main tug-of-war teams for at least physical fitness. Right. And the reason I, I wanted to draw attention to it was, one, because, look, the keto diet, the intermittent fasting diet, exercise training, all that type of stuff, there's trendy stuff, there's stuff that makes no sense, there's stuff that actually works out there. And without the ability to look underneath the hood and see what the actual gears and mechanisms are, it's all the same at some point. You know what I mean? Like, you can't actually tell the difference unless you know some of this stuff at a basic level. So when I looked at AMPK and mTOR in the context of all these intermittent stressors, it took what was once a very benign, boring system that I had to learn, like, when I was 20, <laughs> taking... avoid learning if you could. Jesus. <laughs> Just get the, all the answers correct on the test and then forget it as quick as possible. Exactly. Once upon a time, I was taking a cell biology course as like a sophomore in college, and they're like hammering mechanism after mechanism into my system. And this this particular thing was just one among like a hundred of them. And I'm like, I don't care. I just need to survive. Jackstat, tyrosine, what? And then flashback uh, from there, I honestly didn't give a damn. However, I now that- I don't even remember this being in my cell bio class. Now, granted, I graduated a few years before you did. Hmm. And it's, some of this stuff is cutting edge still, even to this day. That's true. So it may not have even been in my class. And I have to give a, shout, a shout out to Barb Trask, my cell bio teacher. She was amazing. 
Um, so Barb, if, if you did teach this and I totally forgot, please forgive me. <laughs> it's a long range apology, man. <laughs> but yeah, back then, man, it was just part of the noise. And now because we're physicians, I didn't know I was going to be a doc when I was like, you know, 19 studying cell bio. Mm -hmm. um, this is one of the most elegant and important mechanisms that I wish I learned probably in med school would have been nice too. But let's, let's lay this out. So let's do it. Let's do it. Let's, let's start at, at the very, very, um, broad level. Our body's designed to adapt to its fuel, to its inputs and outputs. Specifically, the inputs and outputs in this case are fuel right. and stress. So if you are in a situation where you have lots of fuel, then it would make sense that your system is calibrated to use that fuel to build something, right? Either Ma use the fuel or store it. Exactly. I just stabbed a woolly mammoth and I'm eating its liver. Man, I'm going <laughs> this to... This tastes amazing, man. I better store up some of that. Did you know that the Comanches used to season their, like, bison liver with gallbladder juice? Huh. I did not know that. I wonder how that tastes. I don't know, but I, I never thought to do it before. And after hearing that, I was kind of like... I started craving liver and gallbladder juice. I never thought that would be a thing. So Keep they, in mind, uh, all of this is raw. If I see bile seasoning in the store, I should buy some and uh, sprinkle it on, on liver. I'd appreciate that. Tell me how it goes. But um, I'm wondering what store I'd be in. Probably uh, Whole Foods. This probably. was established from, I think it was the Rise and Fall of the Summer Moon or something like that. Empire of the Summer Moon. Okay. Really cool book about... Um, Texan history, actually, or Texan New Mexico, Colorado history. Yeah. They talk about the Comanches in a lot of detail, and that just came up a thousand different ways. And then they stabbed the bison in the liver. All right, chapter, like, seven. And then they killed the bison in the liver. And then chapter nine. And then they salted the liver with the gall. I'm like, can you please stop talking about liver? I'm getting really hungry. <laughs> I want some pate. Right. <laughs> Keep in mind, I haven't eaten in the past 24 hours. Well, that's a book not to read during an intermittent fast. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually craving bison liver now. <laughs> I have only myself to blame. So what happens is, let's say you take in a lot of fuel, a large amount of fuel. Whatever format that may be in. Exactly. A good amount of that's going to be converted directly into acute energy systems. You'll, right. you'll, uh, you'll make some glucose, you'll replenish this thing called glycogen, which is just fancy for other fuel source. Stored in the? In the liver. The liver. Which I'm makes sorry, it delicious. I had, to, I had to go back to the whole liver thing. I was wondering where you're going there, man. <laughs> I told you I'm fasting. And then the other part is going to maybe go into some fat storage and so on and so forth. But when right, you have too right. much fuel, let's say you have so much fuel in your system that you can't put it into acute storage. Now you got to put it into like the freezer, the equivalent of your body's deep freezer, and that's fat. Long storage. Or yeah. let's say you have so much energy that you know what? Man, times are good. We're in an economic surplus right now. You know what we're going to do? We're going to invest in some infrastructure. So what you do is you start building up better bones, rebuild your collagen, make some new DNA sequences. You know what I mean? You prepare yeah. for, you prepare for the hard times. Well, and we also know that when there is more plenty, that's when reproduction increases. So are we talking uh, about economics now or about we're, biology? We're talking biologically and economically. So um, looking at our bodies, you know, the traditional thought was so oh, people who are eating more. Are getting obese because they're storing for the rainy day but in reality uh, historically speaking societies when during times of plenty they actually reproduce more they don't store more fat in the in in the presence of excess calories so it's an interesting uh, connection to that that now you're maximizing systems by creating another entire person another not an entire system exactly 
And these are these are the behaviors of times of plenty, right? Right. And then on the other side, what if? All right. So it's the ice age. Man, we're we're jumping eons now. It's the ice age. The woolly mammoths are dead. I'm hungry, and that Neanderthal over there took my last kill. Man, I'm gonna go another week without eating. That's the other side of this equation. That's when you start to consolidate, can start to rebuild. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to say, oh man, I'm starving, I'm losing weight. That's not quite how it goes. If right. if we're in a times of famine, right? So if the, I just stabbed a woolly mammoth as a feast, now it's time for famine. We need to find a way to maintain our energy stores while doing as little damage to our infrastructure as humanly possible. That whole conversation is mediated by um, insulin, glucagon, epinephrine, norepinephrine, adrenaline, yeah, cortisol, hormonal. the hormone soup. I mean, that's what is that's the whole purpose of the hormones is to help maintain systems. Exactly. And look, man, there's a lot of hormones out there. My wife's in nursing school right now. She's trying to learn all the hormones. There's a ton of them. They're annoying. If we get past all that and go down nitty gritty into the cell biology, though, many of these systems collapse into two fundamental variables because ultimately there's an on switch and an off switch for rebuild, feast or famine. Right. And that is where this AMPK and mTOR thing comes along. mTOR, otherwise called mammalian target of rapamycin. Whew, that's a lot of sentences. That's, that's a lot why of words. That's they call it mTOR. Yeah. That's why we love acronyms, because we don't want to have to say all of the words every time we need it. Could you imagine saying every one of those words every time you said, had to say mTOR? I mean, it would be really good speech rehab. <laughs> it would. Mammalian target of rapamycin. Say that four times fast. Cue like three hours. With your mouth full of marbles. Oh, that would suck. <laughs> but... <laughs> Mammalian target of rapamycin, otherwise known as mTOR, is the master switch for our anabolic metabolism. What does mm -hmm. that mean? That means that when times are plenty, when there's food abundant and when times are good, you're not at war and all that good stuff, you commit the resources, you commit the cellular machinery to build fat, to build proteins, to build new DNA sequences. The cells will grow, the cells will replicate. That's Emphasis, the, the cells will grow. That's the rep, uh, replication and reparation time frame. Exactly. Essentially. And then on the other end, you have the AMPK system. This one, this one doesn't have as clean of an of a acronym because it's adenosine monophosphate. That's AMP. Then K is kinase. So that's a lot of biology there that you don't have to worry about. That just basically means a protein that breaks stuff down. Exactly. Essentially. So the other side is AMP kinase, AMPK. What that does is that turns on the opposite systems. When AMPK goes live, you start to recycle. Specifically, you look for parts to scavenge to make fuel. So let's say, fine, uh, the times are rough, right? I need to make some fuel, and I have all of that fat stored up in my adipocytes, but no, uh, no food. Man, I guess it's time to burn the adipocytes. I guess I'm going to go into the cellar. Exactly. Start pulling out the storage, the food storage. 100%. And then the question becomes, do you burn? What else do you burn? You you use that uh, fat to make fuel. But at the same time, you start looking for resources to make sugar, because you actually do need sugar. Whether or not you need to eat, it's a different story, but your body does need glucose to operate, and you can make sugar from a thousand different ways. We have a process called gluconeogenesis, mm -hmm. right which is done in the, in the liver. liver. Right there in the liver. God, it's back to the liver. Every morning it happens. Every morning I eat liver? Every morning the gluconeogenesis happens. That too. Um, <laughs> well, you, I don't know what you eat for breakfast, but you you might bring something to Jen and she's like, um, you want? You sure you want that for breakfast? True story, I don't eat breakfast. <laughs> but what ends up happening is when the system is running on empty, you start scavenging other parts of your cellular structure to make mm -hmm. new fuel mm -hmm. whilst trying to your best to spare the parts that you need to keep because look, it's one thing, let's say, okay, let's make this into a house. Okay, it's the dead of winter, it's cold, and I need to 
keep the heat on so we don't die of frostbite or something. What am I going to burn? Am I going to burn the, the chairs and the tables in the house? Or am I going to burn some of the backup firewood I had stored out back? Or am I going to burn the actual roof and walls, right? All in a certain sequence, right? You start out with the stuff that you prepared for. You had some wood in the back. You burn through that all. And then if the winter's still cold and you don't have any more uh, resources, then you start burning the stuff in the house. Exactly. But what furniture would I burn first? Should I burn like this really nice fancy table that I just bought or this old dingy piece of shit chair that, you know, has two screws missing and wobbles every time I sit on it? Oh, well, I guess, do you fancy sitting or do you fancy having something to eat on? I like not having iron in my butt. Well, yeah. Well, there we go. So we throw the chair into the fire. Throw the chair in the fire. Now that burns quick and then you go to the hardwood. There you go. Now, the reason we had that prolonged, weird, mixed metaphor was because the cell actually has a structure, has a way to recognize what parts to burn and what parts to keep. That's a very big deal here because once upon a time, we thought that if we were out of fuel, we're going to burn anything and everything. We used to think that we'd sacrifice muscle and bone in order to keep the house alive. And then we found out that we are, thank God, better than that. Right. So the way that's mediated is actually really cool. Um, we're going to introduce the last weird hard concept. It's free radicals. Uh, and free radicals are the bane of our existence, but they also mean that we're alive. Um, as fuel is oxidized, the uh, byproduct of the, oxida the oxidation reactions are free radicals. Exactly. It's, it's an unfortunate uh, consequence of the machine. Like, look, man, we got to burn coal or oil or whatever we're going to burn, but that's not a pure process. The process of making electricity for the country kind of has some waste products. Mm -hmm. The body's not that different. The process of making ATP, that's the unit of energy that we have, kind of is a dirty process. We try to control as much as we can, but at some point, the free radicals, uh, which is, I guess is the equivalent of smog, is going to spill out. The difference between most of our environmental stuff in the real world and what's going on inside our cells are, we have a mechanism to control and recycle that smog and control it, right? Right. You know, it's kind of like the uh, trash that we generate from our, our living. We uh, have refuse from packaging. We have leftover food that is not edible, uh, the ends and, and the bones and, and whatnot. And so we throw them in the uh, trash can and then we put our trash can out on the street. Well, our trash can doesn't just sit there. Our city has a mechanism installed or built into the uh, societal structure that collects this trash and dispose of it, disposes of it somewhere. And uh, in, in our case, um, they collect the regular rubbish and then they also collect the recycle, uh, recycling so that the recycling can be reused. The body tries to do as much of that reuse as, as possible, but it can't reuse everything. So we do have to get rid of some things. We have to get rid of the uh, rubbish. Exactly. And the way we get rid of that rubbish is this exact process. For instance, the mitochondria. Once upon a time, I, I know most of us got through at least sixth grade, I hope. I hope. If you didn't, sorry. But for the most part, I'm assuming if you made it as far as a podcast, you did. The, um, the idea is that the mitochondria takes the brunt of damage because that's the actual power plant, right? Right. Like, that's, that's the generator of the cell. Right, which means that's the thing that most acutely has to deal with all of the refuse that's produced by our metabolic processes. The, the mitochondrial machinery takes hits from these free radicals. So why are free radicals so bad? They start stealing stuff. They really love electrons. And so once you release a free radical into a local system, it starts stealing electrons wherever it can get them. And unfortunately, when you steal someone's electrons, you make them mad. And then they become radicals as well. 
and all of a sudden you have this chain reaction, electrons being stolen all over the place and everyone getting mad and then everything breaks down and then you have societal collapse. Exactly. Originally I wanted to use this metaphor like, oh man, the cellular machinery, let's talk about free radicals like rust. But it's not quite like that because in this metaphor, it's more like we're made of wood and free radicals are fire. Right. Because uh, once the fire catches hold and the, the electrons are dancing across all over the place, the wood breaks down eventually. Exactly. A in a very energetic process. Right. And, you know, fire tends to propagate more fire until all the fuel's burned up and all of a sudden we're dead. Right. So the electrons are free in the environment. There you go. So we have flame retardant systems. We have fire putting out systems in our body. All of that is in us. And the cool thing is that only goes live under times of famine. So mTOR, right? mTOR is live. We build, we feast, we make cool stuff, we make some DNA, we reproduce. Hooray, huzzah. However, exactly, it's party time. Mm -hmm. The economy's good, man. Let's go yeah. buy some kit. You know? <laughs> Let's do it. Yeehaw. Now, the other side is when times are rough, now we need to consolidate. We need to start cashing in on those savings, mm -hmm. use them to make do, right? Now we're downsizing, we're decluttering. Exactly. Um, we only take out the trash, or rather that, that trash metaphor we built up, the garbage uh, trucks only come during times of famine. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting feature of our programming. Right. It's not like we filter out everything all the time. We will only consolidate when we're not eating. Right. Or when we're not stressed because there's other ways to activate the AMPK system. We didn't actually talk about how to activate these systems yet, but notice I keep re returning to f metaphors of feast and famine. Mm -hmm. Really what the signals are are actually times of uh, stress and recovery because it's not just um, fuel that does it, it's actually fuel consumption as well. Because let's say I just ate a woolly mammoth. Hooray. Oh, tasty. We did barbecue. We're tusk. in Texas after all. Well, what you do is you take the slabs of like of uh, mammoth meat, you slide up on the tusk and you use the tusk as like a, like a rotisserie a type of deal. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm hungry for some mammoth. I now. really need to eat something. <laughs> um, however, that isn't the only way to build up uh, the insulin system. It's also, you know, resting, like going to right, sleep right. will activate the system. Calming down, as in not being at war, will calm down the system. On the other end, the AMPK side, it doesn't actually measure whether you ate or not. It measures the basal level of energy, specifically AMP, mm. in your body. So we have ATP, that's an acronym. ATP is the unit of fuel our body has. When you use ATP, it becomes something called AD, as in delta P. Yeah, it, lo it loses a phosphate. Yep. And it goes from three phosphates to two phosphates. Try, die, three, and eventually two. we can get down to one phosphate. Exactly. And the more AMP, that's adenine monophosphate, right? Mm -hmm. The more AMP builds up, that's the equivalent of having depleted fuel cells in your car. The more AMP there is, the less fuel you have Fuel cell, what year am I speaking in that I'm thinking about fuel cells in the car? <laughs> Elon Musk just launched a spaceship, so I'm thinking like Jetsons era. I'm sorry. Yeah. But the more AMP in the system, that means the more energy depleted our systems are, and that's what encourages the system to go into scavenger mode. Now, you can deplete systems by starving, right, by not eating. The other way is to burn that energy. Let's say instead of fighting and eating a woolly mammoth, let's back the clock up about 20 minutes. I need to take down a woolly mammoth. So you better have the fuel to do it. Exactly. And it takes a lot of fuel. And it's not going to be just one little like endurance run. I need to run up to that mammoth, hurl a spear, run the hell away because it's going to try to kill me afterwards. Throw another spear, bleed it out, run, dodge, run, dodge. I'm going to use a lot of energy under a very short amount of time. Fortunately, and the end result will be a good source of energy. Exactly. And replenish. Mm -hmm. But the act of me exerting at the highest level in order to get that meat 
is going to be the same thing that makes the energy levels drop so low that the body goes, yo, give this guy more fuel. We need to consolidate, burn, burn, burn. But notice that's exercise now. That's not just food. Right. But notice the biochemistry collapses into a similar mechanism. Through exercise or through diet, we can actually activate the system that recycles. Well, fortunately, we're not fighting uh, woolly mammoths anymore. We're not having to hunt and gather. But unfortunately... I mean, I still hunt and <laughs> gather. But. Right, right. Well, unfortunately, we're not hunting and gathering. Yes, and, yes. And that's, that's the whole premise of what we're getting to, and we'll talk about this in more detail in the next episode, is somehow we have to activate these systems that are built into us, but through our, quote-unquote, I'm doing the air quotes, progress in society, where we're now sitting on our backsides for 8 to 12 hours a day, and our systems are not being activated at all. Right. We th we're in a constant uh, state of plenty. Which is a good problem to have. It is. A, yeah, don't get me wrong. It's, it's definitely a good problem to have. But now we are facing all sorts of chronic illness as a result of our chronic plentiful uh, society. Exactly. Uh, we're not calling up the trash collector. I mean... Uh, a couple of months ago, I forgot to take the trash out for trash day. So we had to wait another week. Right. And like, like I said, I've got a family of seven. We produce a pretty healthy amount of trash. And that was not a pleasant uh, series of, uh, of days after that, trying to figure out how we were going to get rid of the trash and not overwhelm ourselves in the stink, you know? Right. The, the idea is that Good for us that we're past the times where we have to actually fight woolly mammoths and hopefully each other in order to survive. And we are blessed to have this environment where the problem is we have too much. But the thing is, that's still a problem. We need to learn how to live in an environment where the baseline isn't death by starvation, it's death by overconsumption. And that's a strange thing, but at the end of the day, the point of this is humans, at the level of their biochemistry, need to struggle. And uh, we are going to talk about that in our next episode. You, you may have noticed that this is a two-part episode here. So we've built up the basis and the foundation for our next episode. Thanks for joining us on Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast, where we talk about your body, your health, and how to fix things. Come back for the next episode so we can learn how to fix this problem. Thank you for listening to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod, or shoot us an email at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N, Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Producer Rob Upchurch and medical advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast. Medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast presents the Rollin' Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or correction of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Paredes, 
Saj Survey, Podcast Producers, the University of North Texas, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. This blog or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to make comments or requests, we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission.